This is the 12 Songs of Christmas. I'm Alex Rawls, and this is my podcast about Christmas music. Today, I'm talking to Bruce Coburn, the Canadian folk artist. The interview took place last year when he was preparing to start a tour celebrating 50 years in music. The conversation was an interesting one for me because I used to see him regularly on a cafe patio in my neighborhood in Toronto in the early 1980s. I was drinking beer with friends while he had notebooks spread out on his table along with his coffee. We never spoke, and since he was usually focused on his writing in front of him, I'm not even sure he ever really registered my existence. He didn't have to, and it might have been a little awkward if he had, because at the time I was a punk rock first guy and wasn't really there for finger-picked folk music with spiritual overtones. After I left Canada and moved to New Orleans, I learned, like all big boys eventually, that I'm not my record collection, and that there was room in it for me and people who didn't necessarily play electric guitars hard, including Bruce Coburn. 1991's Nothing But a Burning Light was a turning point for me, particularly one of the best ones, with Booker T's organ simply and luminously coloring Coburn's straightforward vocal. Two years later, Coburn released Christmas, an album that steered hard into his folk and Episcopalian roots. We're going to talk about that, but first, we'll start with one of the best ones, which is probably a very non-canonical starting place, but since I just talked about it and it means a lot to me, I want to give you a chance to hear what I was talking about. After that, we'll be back with Bruce Coburn on 12 Songs. Yes, I get along. If I had no choice It's taken me this long To find you Done a lot of getting ready for this Some things we learn so Look at you, you got plenty behind you. There's lots of ways to hit the ground. Is it sometimes hard to listen to older songs and connect to who you were at the time when you wrote them? Sometimes depends on the song. Most songs not, but uh, um, I mean, it's hard. It's never hard to connect. The songs are like uh, it's like a photo album of my life in a way. I mean, so going through the old songs really takes me back. It's not always with a clear memory of the circumstances in which the song was written, but but very often with that, and and certainly into a you know a, a recollection of what what this, the state of things was at the time. So, um, so sometimes that's painful and, and most of the time it isn't. Most of the time it's interesting or pleasant or neutral, you know, in some way, but, but uh, um, once in a while with certain songs. Yeah. I'll tell you, part of the reason I ask, I had a remarkable experience a few years ago where uh, Lucinda Williams played here in town and she played her 
uh, Lucinda Williams self-titled album from Rough Trade Records about, I think it was the 25th anniversary of that record. And it was so clear that her life had changed enough and enough had happened in the intervening time that her performing those songs, most of those songs almost felt like a cover band that that was, that was not emotionally where she was anymore. And, and it became clear because once the record finished and she was doing songs from the last decade, that the emotional accuracy and the, the kind of the precision snapped in, in a way that wasn't obvious as she was doing older songs. And I was thinking that that would be for anybody who has a catalog and who, and who has led a life that there have to be things that you've done that now seem like that was a good idea at the time, but I'm not that guy anymore. Well, yeah, there, I, I don't, I don't have too much of that sort of stuff. I mean, what you're describing is a familiar enough sensation in a way, but I, uh, I'd be hard put to think of a song that actually fit that description. Um, I mean, there's songs that I wrote back in the day that I wouldn't write now. There's lots of those, but they still are, they still are alive for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the person who wrote them is still in me, you know, even though it's been added to and, and perhaps subtracted from in some <laughs> ways too, but, but, uh, uh, by the passage of time, but that, I mean, that's, uh, I, to me, the job, if I'm performing a song for people, the job is to make it live, whether I feel it or not. I mean, it, it, of course, if you're, if you don't, if you really don't feel it, it's, that's hard to do. Uh, and it's, uh, harder. I've never done a show where <clears throat> the whole show was focused on a particular period of, of my songwriting career, so-called. Uh, so I don't know what that would be like, really. But uh, I know that a song like Wondering Where the Lions Are, I mean, I, I don't... I, I have to generate feel the feeling for that song in myself when I perform it. I usually... I mean, I think I'm able to do that. Uh, because I like the fact that people like the song and I like the fact that, that people get into it and sometimes they sing along, that sort of thing. So it makes it uh, easier than if it were just, I would, if I was just tossing it out there. But, uh, but that's as much a product of the fact that I've sung the song so many times. and It's like I, I'm, I'm sort of not allowed to do a show that that's not in. Right. So that you know, the kinds of songs that fit that category uh, get tiresome at times. And sometimes I've had to let them just lie fallow for a while because I couldn't bring them anything. But, uh, but uh, you know, if I had a rock and rock, just like that too. I mean, I, I don't like to go where I was when I wrote that song at all. Uh, and I didn't like it right away. I mean, as soon as I wrote the song, I didn't want to go there. But, but uh, you know, it's one of the ones that people or upset if they don't get to hear in a show. So it's in most of my shows. There was a while after 9-11 where I didn't do it because it just seemed like the wrong kind of, uh, to be encouraging the wrong kind of sentiment in in people that were already on the edge of that. Uh, But but since then it's come back in. But I mean, 
it, it's a question of of taking the songs, of finding a way into the songs to make them live. And I, and it's actually, I mean, it's interesting that you were reminded of uh, a cover band when you're listening to Lucinda because uh, the same. I mean, if for the Christmas album, I did, they were covers basically, except sure. for the, except for the one or two original songs, just one anyway. Uh, but for the most part, there it's uh, it, those old songs, some of which were really familiar, some of which not so much, and uh, and make them live. You know, find the essence of the song, and and and. I, and then find a way to incorporate that essence into my way of doing it. Right? Sure. And that's that's the job. It would be the same if I were covering Tony Bennett or or uh, uh, you know Frank Sinatra or something. I mean, I'd I'd have to find my way into those songs that would make them live for me. And I and so that's I mean you that's what I have to do with my old songs that I don't particularly feel as well. Like okay, well. What does it if if it if I can't get to what it meant when I wrote it? What does it mean now? You know? Right. Have, have songs changed meanings, or or have you found have you found something fresh in them? I mean, I think of an example like uh, like Dylan, which is a, a, a kind of a somebody who has drastically reinterpreted and re-explored his songs over his career, and for like at least the last decade, if I've seen him do like a Rolling Stone, he performs it far more charitably uh, than he did when, when he recorded it. And that there's greater understanding in his performance than he showed uh, in the, uh, you know, the first time around. And I wonder if in the process of, of sort of going back through songs, if you found edges or found perspectives that you you could kind of tweak or play with or, or just heard something that in them that you didn't necessarily recognize was there the first time. Once in a while, I discover something that wasn't, I, I don't know if I can give you a good example, but I, but I, uh, yeah. So I'll see things that I, that are in the song that I didn't, that I wasn't conscious of when I wrote it sometimes. And, and when it was new, I mean, sometimes, you know, you I, I write a song and I don't, I don't revise them the way Dylan does. I mean, I, I just, I wrote it to be that way and I want to keep it that way. And that's how I present it to people uh, with, with minor exceptions. Like I might, there's a few songs where, where I've had to change the guitar part over the years because my fingers won't do the original part. So I have to come up with something similar, but that gets the feel uh, that I can still play for the, And once in a while, I just change something because like a lot of the songs in the eighties, that were written with for kind of larger bands um, were less focused. I mean, that's that in the, not all songs, but many of the songs in that period were written without uh, consideration for me having to perform them solo, which has not been true of any of the other decades that I've been doing this. So um, the, uh, in those cases, it was necessary, like a song like, um, World of Wonders from the mid eighties uh, on the album that's recorded with a band and the, the guitar part is just like a tiny little rhythm part. There's hardly anything to it. 
So I had to come up with a, a way of doing it solo that still that captured something of the song and some of some of the elements of the band, but was workable and, and effective in a solo context. So uh, the, those have there's one or you know well a few songs like that 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 have changed from the album that I've had to kind of come up with things for, but but um, mostly I like to keep them the way they were. And and finding new things, newness in them. The fun is in rediscovering an old song that I hadn't done for a long time. The, um, I, I pulled out, there was an old song from one of the early albums called When the Sun Goes Nova. Uh, that's kind of a silly song. And um, uh, I it, that had just been gone out of my brain for you know 40 plus years until a couple of years ago and then it came back and I and I was doing it here and there on the last the last bunch of shows that I did but um it uh you know it just came back like oh this is cool I like this and it's fun to I can and I and it because I hadn't done it for so long I, it felt fresh when the sun The Christmas album came out in 93. How did that project start? Um, it's something I'd wanted to do for a long time. And uh, we were in the studio in LA doing um, recording Dark to the Heart, I guess. And uh, we, we, there was this sort of a period between the recording and the mixing it's a little hazy for me now exactly what order things happened. And we did the tracks for that album in Woodstock. And then we were doing a few overdubs and, and mixing in LA. And uh, uh, we being me and T-Bone Burnett and, uh, you know, the rest of the cast of the album. But, but um, so I was going to be in LA. How did we do this? I did that because the crisp album was recorded in Toronto. Actually, I, it, somewhere it, they they they're they're mixed together in my mind because they happened in the same time period. And I I, I know that we we did some recording for the Christmas album in LA. Some of the the extra voices, the Hispanic singers that sing on Rio Rio Two, and and uh, various people that I wanted Jackson and Brown and and. T-Bone and Sam Phillips uh, wanted to get them on the album and they, you know, they were in LA. So we recorded them in LA, but, but the bulk of the album was done in Toronto and it's just something that I'd wanted to do for a long time. And then for some reason on that occasion, there was a budget for it. And I, and I mean, Bernie had, Trinkelstein had a lot to do with, of course, managing the budget side of it. And, and uh, I'm not sure I don't really remember now how that came about, but but um, it was like okay, well, 
you know, I wanted to do this for a long time and I've got the songs together and, I've, and, and now's the chance. And we did it. Uh, uh, I recorded all the songs myself and then we added people to it. So, which was the practical way to get it done at the time. We didn't have to, um, I didn't have to have, assemble a band and have them learn all the songs, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. And we, we brought in, it was kind of the way we did the, the, the very earliest albums, um, except more focused on that, that method of recording. Um, so, you know, it was me and me and a click track basically recording the songs and, and then everybody came in and played over it. And the, the, the guys that came in, well, the, the men and women who came in and played, played great. I mean, they, you, you, I don't hear that when I listen to the album. Sometimes you do hear that with people's albums when they've done it that way. You can, it's pretty obvious. But I don't think that the Christmas album suffers from that. I think that it really all fit together pretty seamlessly. Oh, I agree. How did you uh, decide on what songs to do? Uh, well, I started, I talked about this in the liner notes of the album. Uh, I started with a little booklet. My dad had made this booklet for me. Had, at some point, some, somebody gave him a sample set of Christmas cards, but the, and the cards consisted of the lyrics and, and kind of a lead sheet for, for a bunch of the popular Christmas carols. Oh, cool. Uh, and, um, and he made, he, 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 you know, punched holes in these and put binder rings on them and, and made a little, and made a cardboard cover for it. That was kind of pretty and, and, and gave it to me as a present. This is, I don't know how old I was. I was probably around 12 or 13, something like that. Um, maybe 14 anyway. Um, but I'd had this thing the whole time and, and that became the basis of the album. It was the little town of Bethlehem and, and silent night and, and the various other of the familiar songs were in that. Um, and then I, then it was a question of looking for more stuff, looking for interesting stuff. So I researched that. I mean, I researched big quotation marks. There. I, hunted, I hunted around for, for, other kinds of material that wasn't that. I mean, I, there were some of those songs I didn't feel I could really do justice to. Um, I wouldn't have done uh, It Came Upon the Midnight Clear had I not heard Sam Phillips' translation of it into a minor key that's at the, at the closing credits of a movie called The Midnight Clear. It's a, it's a war movie uh, that she, she did that song for. And uh, and it's it was so effective, in, both in the movie and and as her version of the song with it, because making it minor like that, because the song is is very it's an anti-war song basically it's a you know it's a, it must have been written during the first world war I, I don't remember now, um, but it talks about the you know sound of cannons and all that uh, in the verses that we don't normally sing. And uh, so it, that was, that became a contender right away as soon as I heard that. Like T1, in fact, probably said, oh, you should hear Sam's version of Midnight Clear. But, you know, and, and that's what we ended up doing. It came upon a midnight clear, that glory. 
Some of the other stuff uh, down in Yon Forest. I mean, I was looking through books of of Christmas carols. There was a, a Penguin book of Christmas carols, paperback with all these obscure pieces in it. I think I think that one came from there, and um, and uh, the one that everybody plays all the time. <laughs> I can't think of the name of it. Ah. Uh, um, I, I I don't I yeah I, I, it'll come to me when I'm not thinking about it but it's, it's the one that people seem to have attached themselves most to on the album, um, but that and and uh, there was the this the song this kind of ragtime Christmas song early on one Christmas morn that uh, was sung by Frankie Halfpint Jackson and his his sanctified singers. Wow! I, I didn't I didn't know this until after I recorded the song, but Colin Linden, who's a who's steeped in blues lore, you know, and, and all of the stuff for black music of that period. Um, said, oh yeah, Frankie Jackson was a famous cross-dresser. So, but here he's doing a, a religious song, and it's it's so irreligious. And his version of it, I mean, it's a little more so in mine, but not much. I mean, because it's just like who would think? Who would think of writing a, a ragtime Christmas, Christmas song about Jesus? You know, yeah. like that being born, and, and and yet it's a great song. So the, there's just it was just a hunt all over the place. I had that on the record uh, of like a probably a folkways collection of. Uh, songs, you know, black music from the 30s or whatever. with an acoustic version of uh, Adeste Fidelis. Why uh, perform that song instrumental? Um, it just made, I, I, because I could. <laughs> Basically. It's like, it works like this, so I'm going to do it like this. And I don't, I didn't, we had enough material. I didn't, I didn't want to record the whole song. I mean, the, the song 
song with all its verses, etc. Um, and I, it, I, I don't remember now whether I felt like I wouldn't do as good a job of singing it as some of the other ones or what. I don't, I don't know now. But it, but it just made a nice little guitar piece. And the same with um, the, the other one, Joy to the World, that, that, that's at the other end of the album. Um, so uh, it, they just they just made a nice little simple statement to to uh, to bookend the record. Did you have to think about how to about how to arrange it about how how you wanted to play it? Um, well, like all of the stuff, I, I, you're I'd be fooling around on the guitar and I think of oh that could you know that could work like this. There's a lot of things you can do in D on a guitar, <laughs> and, and you know, with the with the six string tuned down, and that was that just came out of cooling around. What was going on in your career at the time that you recorded the album? There was a lot going on. I but I'd had I t- I took 1990 off. I was at the end of the 80s. I was kind of burned out, and I I I took a sabbatical, and I because I hadn't written any songs for an extended period, like a year and a half or something. It was at the time that was shocking, and I thought, well, maybe it's over. Maybe I'm not going to do this anymore. But before I committed to that notion, I. I thought I better just take a break. And within within minutes of having officially started the break, I started writing songs. And, <laughs> and then that that became the, the material on nothing but a burning light. But uh, but and which but then after nothing but a burning light, we did a whack of touring, and uh, and more songs came during the course of that. It was a pretty intense emotional time for me, and and. Uh, so uh, the songs for uh, Dart to the Heart kind of came out in the, in the couple of years uh, between the recording of Nothing But a Burning Light and, and, and recording that, that latter album. And then, um, so, and somehow, I mean, it must have been, I can't imagine I had having that much energy at this point, but, <laughs> but, uh, but I must have had it because I did it. Uh, the... Uh, but the, the Christmas album, I was learning those Christmas songs at the same time as all that other stuff was going on. So there was, I was also living on a horse farm west of Toronto and, and uh, you know, doing a lot of riding and still competing in the, in the, the target shooting discipline that I was in. And, and uh, so it was, it was a very busy time. Oh, good for you. Wow. The nineties, actually, yeah. it, was, it was busy. Yeah, was the album your most overt expression of Christian Christian faith at that point? The Christmas album, yeah, yeah. I would say pretty overt. I mean, yeah, there's no. I mean, you, people sing Christmas songs who don't, uh, who at least don't announce the fact that they have Christian beliefs. I, I, you know, I mean, I can picture Diana Ross singing "White Christmas," uh, for instance, or or but. But and and various other songs. I mean, I've heard you you hear you hear it all the time. You hear it all all Christmas season in the supermarkets. There's people singing Christmas songs 
both secular and religious who you don't associate with spirituality sure. uh, in a particular way. I don't know the people, so I don't know what they actually believe, but, but it's not obvious in the music, but, but, uh, but, you know, yeah, for me, I mean, I, I have not hidden uh, my religious inclinations over the years. And, and uh, you know, this is, it's about as explicit as I've ever gotten. Sure. Uh, with the exception of one or two of my own songs. Right. And there's a song, the, this, one of the songs on Nothing But a Burning Light, uh, Cry of a Tiny Babe, could have easily been on the Christmas album, except we had just recorded it on one album back. Right? So, <laughs> so that that was not a viable contender. But but uh, uh, and that's pretty explicit also. But but uh, it's um, I mean for me the Christmas album it's it is a it, I wanted it to be a spiritual album. I I, I purposely avoided doing songs uh you know like chestnuts roasting on an open fire or or uh have yourself a merry little christmas which are beautiful songs like there's nothing wrong with those songs as songs but but i didn't want to do secular christmas songs uh, for me christmas ha- has a, well in the past at least i mean and less so you know through more of my adulthood but when i was a kid christmas was such an exciting period of time not because of anything spiritual but because of the spirit of christmas uh the you know the the all of the the sort of the dinners the family gatherings the the the, um the giving of presents and the getting of presents in particular of course when you're a kid that's a big deal and and uh but it was always an exciting time and and a good time Everybody's in a good mood, and I mean, I, I had a conversation with Tivoon about this at one point, say talking about I was enthusing like this over my memories of Christmas, and he said, "Well, Christmas for me was hiding under the kitchen table while Mom and Dad fought." You know, I, I think, oh, geez, well, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I felt I felt bad when I heard that, but it, but but you know, so obviously it's not everybody's experience of Christmas, but it was mine, and and that. Uh, that motivated the, the desire to do an album like that as much as anything. But, uh, but that said, I, I wanted it to be an album of spiritually oriented songs. Yeah. yeah. Of which some of, the, some of the Christmas songs around are some of the most beautiful hymns ever. Sure. I saw three ships come sailing in on Christmas Day, on Christmas Day. I saw three ships come sailing in on Christmas Day in the morning. was in them then on Christmas Day, on Christmas Day. Who do you think was in them then but Joseph and his lady? You know, it's one of the things that draws me to to Christmas music as as a topic for conversation is because it's sort of simultaneously so many things in the sense that these songs can exist for one for one artist as very clear expressions of faith and another singer can sing a very passionate version 
and a very hard and, and a very serious, you know, seriously intended version. But the spirituality is much softer, and there's kind of a, and it's not it's not a that they're in any way negating it, but they're not embracing it at the same level. And the mm. idea that it is for many people, these songs are social experiences. And yeah. the number of people, the number of singers I and uh, musicians I've talked to for whom their experience with these songs was, the, the experience that stays with them was singing it in church or at a, you know, a uh, carol sing or at a Christmas party where the family was all there. And the experience of singing these songs in a group was in this sort of communal moment built around these values stuck with them. And so I, I'm always fascinated by this body of music that can be so many things at the same time or, or can be so many different things depending on yeah. who touches it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, I don't know. I assume that that kind of the, the sort of cultural remnants of those things uh, that you're describing is, is a result of of a lot of people having had a, having a similar association with the, the season that, that I that I have that that you know as opposed to a negative view where it was a painful time you know I mean it it became a more painful time when when for me when it was uh, when my first marriage broke up and and we had a, a three and a half year old kid and it was like Christmas became a, a painful time then because you have to like, who's going to get the kid for Christmas, all these negotiations. I mean, it wasn't as bad as it is for some people at all, but it wasn't terrible, but it was more difficult and it took some of the fun out of it for sure. Sure. But that all wore off after a while. And, you know, it was a temporary condition that, that we all got past, but, um, but, uh, and it still feels like a warm time for me, you know, like that, even though, I mean, I live thousands of miles from the rest of my family of, of, of my uh, birth family as well. I live from any, any version of family, actually, because my wife's family all live in, in Northern Virginia for the most part, but, but, uh, you know, and, and my family live in Ottawa, Montreal, but, uh, but, uh, it's still, even if we don't get to see them, it's it's still there's still that feeling in the air. Sure. So, I I, I love Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's no, and I, and I I was excited at the time to to get like the song Shepherds on the Christmas album. I rewrote. We were talking about revising songs a while a while ago, and and I mean I that's an example of one that I completely rewrote actually the same lyrics, but. But uh, I, I substituted a kind of um, meditative jazz flavored for the original version, which is was, was recorded for uh, uh, in the falling dark. Um, that I, I rewrote it as a kind of fifties uh, rock song, uh, and. And it worked both ways, but but it fit the album better as the rock song, I think. Although, you know, with hindsight, maybe maybe it didn't, maybe. But but I think the album would have been too long because the, the 
the other version of it is quite long. They wake up suddenly in the night There is light And figures dancing in the sky Clothed in more colors than the world can contain The album uh, folds in songs from other cultures, including songs in Spanish and French and Huron. Why do that? Well, the Huron Carol, of course, was written by by uh, the, the whichever one of the uh, the original Catholic missionaries to to Native Americans in or Canadians, the indigenous people in in what was then New France or was about to become new France. So they, they, they wrote that song in the Huron language uh, for their parishioners or the people they hope to be parishioners. And uh, it's been sung. There are, there's a French version and an English version. And I, I just didn't like the lyrics. Like the English translation sounds. I, I've talked to indigenous people who don't mind this at all. But for me, if I, I can't sing a song that addresses mighty Gitchy Manitou, you know, I'm sorry. It's just, I, it's just not, that's not real for me at all. Right. In, not in English, because I associate it with having had to learn or to memorize Hiawatha in, in public school. And, you know, who, where Tennyson talks about uh, mighty Gitchy Manitou as well. It's like, you know, it just, it just resonated all wrong. So I thought, well, you know, what, what can we do? What's, what's the way around this? Because I love the song musically. right? And it's and what it says is all right. It's just the, the language that it gets translated into, I, I didn't care for. So, so we found the one guy who could still speak Huron. And he coached me in how to sing it. Oh, wow. It was a guy named John Steckley in Sudbury. He was a professor um at the university there. And, uh, I don't know. I don't, I never met him. I spoke to him on the phone. Um, so I, I don't know his background really at all. I just, but he was very helpful in terms of like, I could, I, I could find the, the, the text in print in Huron, but you know, I didn't know how to pronounce it. So, uh, so he coached me on that and, and it, I think it came out. Okay. Um, but you know, I hear, I mean, t- I've heard Tom Jackson sing the, the English lyrics to it, you know, and, and mean it. And, uh, and it's very, it's moving and powerful. It just, I just couldn't do it. Yeah. 
what did you hope the album would do when it came out? I hoped it would find its way into people's homes and that they would like it. Yeah. That's the same with all my albums. Sure. I guess, I mean, do you, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I, you know, I never know like who, who thinks what are, and like on what level they think about, like, do they, you know, do they envision a, a something that would, would sell or would, you know, would, would, would have a, something would come of it or, you know, I, I, I've always, you know, what, what an artist hopes a record will do interests me. Well, you know, I mean, we all, in order to do what we do, we all have, have this sort of narcissistic streak that sort of tells us that people are interested in, in, in the way we do music. Right. Uh, I, I, and I mean, whether that is true or not, you know, I mean, there's some evidence in my case that it's true because people do pay attention, but, but you don't take it for granted and you got to keep that reined in, of course, but it, it, but it underlies everything. So like, you know, why do I, why would I assume that people want to hear my latest song for instance, but I do. And, and I wouldn't write it if I didn't have, if I didn't start from some notion that, and in the end, I, you can't hang anything on that. Like if, if nobody wants to hear the new song, I might still think it's a good song. I might still want to sing it, but, but uh, it's of course better if, if it touches people, it's more meaningful. So uh, I hope that to, with the Christmas album too, I hope that my version of those songs, I mean, for one thing, like introducing stuff like, uh, we, well, Down in Young Forest, I think, I doubt very many people had ever heard that song. Rio Rio Chiu, the, the Spanish one, is actually sung in Catalan, in medieval Catalan. It's not even current Catalan, but the, but the, the um, Jackson Brown lined me up with a bunch of Hispanic singers that he knew to because I I just I wanted somebody to help give it some authenticity, not trusting my ability to pronounce the Spanish probably, and and uh, but they didn't understand it. Wow! They said this is Spanish, like whatever. I mean, it was, <laughs> it, it, it's very much like Spanish, but but it is you know this is we don't really actually know what half this stuff means. I, I, it's not Spanish, but it was, but it's Catalan, it's a, it, which is somewhere between Spanish and French and, and, and who knows what else. But um, it's, uh, but that song, I, I've, after it was out, I had people comment to me, oh yeah, I used to sing that song in, in choir or in school or the, you know, so I guess it was in kind of, it was never in uh, among the Christmas carols that I was aware of when I was a kid. But it, it maybe if you grew up Catholic, it was. I mean, it's a medieval Spanish or Catalan uh, hymn. But um, anyway, but I, I had I had a rec recording of that by New York Pro Musica that from in the early seventies that, that I loved. It was such, such a groovy song, just like just rhythmically and and intensely musical and intensely kind of a, this, the energy that's built into the melody uh, was powerful for me. So I wanted to record it. That's great. Is there a, uh, a song with an arrangement or version you're particularly proud of that we haven't talked about yet? Um, actually, you know, I'm pretty proud of the whole album. <laughs> 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 I, I, and I, 
you know, I go for long, long periods of time without listening to any of it. But when I when I hear it back, um, it's uh, it, it sounds pretty good to me. And I, I mean, I guess if I if I listen to it more often, it might sound less good. I I'm, I'm not sure, but but uh, you know, I think like the way we did uh, go tell it on the mountain, for instance, which I based on the Swan Silvertones version of that song, a 60s gospel group that, that, that was kind of popular in, in that era. A lot of people don't know about them now. I mean, a lot of, a lot of African-American people don't know, don't remember the Swan Silvertones, but, but they did a beautiful version of that song that had that kind of, kind of slightly rocking feel to it. And, and uh, the, so I, I thought that worked and I think we pulled it off. Thanks to Bruce Coburn for the time and the talk. I ran part of that interview last holiday season, and I'm glad to finally get time to run it at more or less full length. At the moment, Coburn doesn't have any Christmas concerts scheduled, but he'll go on tour in January. You can go and see if he's coming to your town at brucecoburn.com. On November 25th, he will have three new releases. The digital album, Rarities, which features songs previously on the Rumors of Glory box set, along with tracks recorded for tribute albums to Gordon Lightfoot, Pete Seeger, the Mississippi Sheiks, and Mississippi John Hurt. He will also release vinyl versions of 1997's The Charity of the Night and 1999's Breakfast in New Orleans, Dinner in Timbuktu. You can pre-order all of them now from his label, True North Records. Thanks to AF The Naysayer for the theme music, and thanks to you for listening. We'll finish with the song he's best known for, Wonder Where the Lions Are. I have to admit, it's one I grew tired of when it got AM and FM airplay in southern Ontario when it was released in 1979. But I encountered it in the wild a month or so ago, and in that moment I could hear what so many friends now and record buyers then heard in the song. I enjoyed hearing it that day and I'm happy to be able to play it again now. This is Wonder Where the Lions Are, Bruce Coburn. Talk to you next week. Sun's up, mm-hmm. looks okay. 